Bob Woodward book coming up, which I have found very entertaining so far. But you know who comes off pretty good in the book so far is Melania. She's. Um, I can't imagine why she wouldn't. Seems um, like a nice girl. I just didn't figure she probably played a role at all. But because um, she's a woman. No, because wow, I just. I'm so sorry, folks. Well, I just kind of assumed they've got a. What I see as a stereotypical billionaire marrying a young model relationship. Yeah, granted. And um, uh, he apparently really pays attention to what she thinks. And uh, and and if she declares something, that's what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, after the ag debates that night, we'll have to call ABC or, or, or NBC. We'll do a sit down. You on the couch, Milani on one side, Ivanka on the other side. Milani said, no, ain't going to happen. I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. That was the end of that. Wow. Tried to go uh, Bill and Hillary. I've made mistakes. Right, right. You're about to make another big one. <laughs> Beware the intern. Beware the Ides of March and the chubby intern. <laughs> it's fascinating to me how often hurdles or obstacles would be presented to them. And the, the staff and the kind of traditional people are, okay, here's the playbook. Here's what we do in this situation. We're prepared. This is all we... He says, no. Yeah. Like, well, for whatever reason, whether it's Bannon or Melania or somebody just says, no, 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 we're not going to do it that way. Yeah, Bannon and Trump had the same sort of mind. No, we're not doing that. And Trump, and they kept going through the, the how you're going to apologize and say, oh, he said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I can't do that. It wouldn't sound like me. Yeah. Which is true. Yeah. Anyone? So, anyway. I'm sorry. I'm a little preoccupied. I have uh, significant financial decisions that Judy and I are working through. Buy low, sell high. See, that's the problem. I keep buying high and selling low. and I've done that. Yeah, me too. Uh, it sucks. And I just, I've, I've been doing, I've, I've attempted to get an economic crystal ball going. I've tried to uh, see into the future of certain blue states on the western coast of America. If you want to know my investing plan, I'm selling it for forty nine ninety nine. You can Venmo me that money. Can I get your series on cassette still? Yes, absolutely. Good. Just send a self addressed stamped envelope, and I will return get, it to you. Get the series on cassette. Well, and 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 predictors of virtually anything, particularly something of the complexity of of economics, economics, sure. um, are famously as wrong as often as they are right. And it's just, I don't even know if there's any point in it, but I came across this article from respected demographers. I've looked over these guys' credentials, and they are absolutely impeccable. They're serious, serious people. Um, And this this article in the uh, New Geography website slash magazine is, A Generation Plans an Exodus from California. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that. God, the, the the economic dangers are so enormous. Any and, and any statewide statistic is as ridiculous as a nationwide statistic, or nearly. I mean, given the fact that California is a nation of thirty-five to thirty-seven million people with highly distinct regions within you want, it. You live in California. You retire. You want to double, triple, or quadruple the amount of money you have in terms of buying power. You move out of the state. Right. You just double, you triple, or quadruple. Well, you're retired. That's my point. Right. So you're oh, retired. Retire. Sorry, yeah. The amount of money you got saved up, you now have four times as much money yeah, because you moved to another state. Or so, three times or two times, depending on where you go. Well, and I don't I don't have the stats in front of me. I wish I did. But uh, don't worry about the specific numbers. Worry about what it says. Is um, During the recovery, California provided, I think, 20% of the job growth in America. Wow. Um, which is, I mean... Oorah for the Golden State, right? But 
80% of that job growth was restricted to tiny geographic areas, specifically Silicon Valley, Bay Area, a little bit L.A., uh, San Diego. But it was tech entirely, almost entirely. Um, leaving a person to look at you know the statistics of the last 5, 10 years and say, wow, that looks pretty healthy. But, uh, oh, man, not, not really, not so much. And then you got Gavin promising universal health care for everyone in the state, including illegal immigrants. And I read a, another demographer point out that no matter what sort of regulations they put in place, the history of California is they probably won't be enforced very well. What will be the population shift when it becomes clear that anybody who can fog a mirror gets 100% free, no copay, no premium, taxpayer-funded medical care in California. So how have, has he introduced a plan for that? Because no, how, no. how do you stop a 50-year-old woman who got breast cancer in uh, Nebraska from moving to California to get it taken care of for free? In short, you don't. You don't. There's no will to well, make... All I mean, that people... would be a brutal thing to do. I mean, I I blanch at the idea of doing that. But if you don't do that, you have a, a catastrophe. What do you mean turn of, her down? Yeah. yeah. Say, go back well, to Nebraska. You, you have a financial catastrophe on your hands. How do you not end up with all the sickest people in the country in you one would. state? You absolutely would. If you had a sick kid, if I had a sick kid, and I live anywhere else, I moved to California. Yeah. We, we're even, we can either go bankrupt... Be very poor or move to California. Right. And we don't have to worry about it at all. Yeah, if of. you're in a situation where that might happen, yeah. But you're going to end up with all those people in a very large country. Yes. Yeah. You move for a couple of years to a tiny apartment in wherever California. You get all the treatment. Gavin pays for it. Well, <laughs> you know, So the question is... But even the Sacramento Bee, which is distinctly a left-leaning newspaper, has said, uh, this is crazy. This, the cost of this program alone would be double the current state budget for everything. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, there are problems, obviously, on the national level. But, boy, you do a state. Wow. Right. Yeah, with, and, and there's no, I mean, there are. How about, and the healthy taxpayers start leaving because taxes are so high. Well, which brings so you got us, healthy taxpayers right. moving and you got sick people or low-income sick people moving in. You're right. That's going to turn into a mess fast. Right. Well, the point of this article, and I'm sorry I get off onto this tangent, but I think about it a lot for obvious reasons. Um, uh, California is the great role model for America, particularly if you read the Eastern press. They make the point. Yet few boosters have uh, to, yet to confront the f- that the state is continuing to hemorrhage people at a higher rate with particular losses among the family formation age demographic critical to California's future. Since the recovery began in 2010, California's net domestic outmigration, according to the American Community Survey, is almost tripled to 140,000 annually. Over that time, the state has lost half a million net migrants, with the bulk of that coming from the L.A. Orange County area. Um uh, the Bay Area, particularly San Francisco, enjoyed a renaissance of in-migration, something not seen since before 2000 for reasons that we were just talking about with the tech boom. But that is changing. Recent Redfin report suggests that's a, it's a real estate website, suggests that the Bay Area, the focal point for California's boom, now leads the country in outbound home searches, which could suggest a further worsening of the trend. And if you look at the... Uh, the the demographics of who is leaving and who is coming in it is enormously weighted 
in uh, outbound, particularly outside the tech areas, outbound is higher income, inbound is is poor. We know a guy doing very well, high-level management, making good money, has two kids, I think, he and his wife. They moved clear across country, and he just he and his wife just sat down, did the numbers, and decided this is the you know and and moving away from everything you know and family and friends is hard, but they just decided the best thing we can do for our family is this yeah. changes our entire financial makeup by doing this. Not, not to mention a bunch of other you know things that might be on your mind too, like uh, traffic and uh, climate and schools that are can get weird and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, the schools thing. I'm glad I'm done with that. Uh, or I would worry about a lot. The largest group leaving the state, some 28%, is 35 to 44, the prime age for families, and uh, prime earning years, too. Another third comes from those 26 to 34 and 45 to 54, also often the age of parents. Um, so anyway, I mean, politics are the waves. Demographic is the demographics are the tides, and you can't dodge tides. Anyway, I don't know. And you can't reverse them quickly. No, no indeed. So I, I didn't. I hadn't intended to get off on that tangent, but... Oh, it's another Demographic Wednesday with Joe Getty. Dr. Joe Getty. That's right. <laughs> well, oh, we had this right. question. Let me answer this real quickly before we go to break. Okay. Because we had somebody ask this, and I think it's interesting, because I heard the term... That's what I we're think, going for. I think I heard this term the first time on this show. I'd never heard of it before. Somebody texted... Grundle? I think I heard Grundle the first time on this show. Hmm. Who came? Who said that first? You, Michael? Who said Grundle first? No, I was Merkin. I think <laughs> you're you're a Merkin guy. Grundle <laughs> was it uh, our old producer Eric Grundleman? I don't know. Your stance is too wide. That gives you a hint. But um, so somebody asked, "What's lesbian bed death?" Oh, I had never heard that term before. I think it came up on our show in an email or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, lesbians, let us know if this is true or not. It's the idea that. Lesbian couples more than other couples, uh, hetero, hetero couples, gay. Um, uh, after a certain amount of time, they just stop having any passion. Bedroom passion just right. goes away. Now you could, I guess, imagine since women are more likely to do that than men, and often it's the husband that keeps that going to a certain level. Has if to you do had testosterone, if you had in large t- measure in both sexes. If you got two women who don't care, it just ends. And it may, if neither one of you care, then what difference does it make? The decline in testosterone in women in older ages is uh, is responsible for a lot of that. Uh, you could take testosterone, but then you'd have a beard. And many women don't want a beard. A lot of them. <laughs> Never mind, as we were discussing yesterday, whether they want their man to have a beard. They personally do not want to be bearded. Yeah, we saw we were in uh, contact with a woman the other day somewhere that had uh, quite a beard in my... Uh my boys were confused by that and hmm. asking lots of questions. It's gender bending madness, Jack. It was it was it didn't appear to be anything like that. It was just it was just a woman who for whatever reason has some facial hair and decides not to uh, deal with that. My wife couldn't imagine why you wouldn't want to deal with that, but some people don't. I am what I am, she was thinking. Well, I admire that on one level. <laughs> Anyway, they cut my beard, right? And forced me to eat it. I'm against that. <laughs> Our ER stories coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the, of the nation. 
The Armstrong and Getty Show. Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said yesterday that the White House is not considering conducting lie detector tests to uncover the author of the anonymous op-ed published in the New York Times. Because putting a lie detector in the White House would be like putting a smoke detector in Willie Nelson's dressing room. Hey now. Because there's so much lying in one and marijuana smoking in the other, is the point of that joke. Um, I haven't gotten to the supposedly damaging part of the Woodward book, damaging to the Trump administration. I haven't gotten to that stuff yet. Everything mm-hmm. I've read so far, if I didn't know all this other, it's just an interesting tale so far. Okay. Uh, Chris Christie comes off not so well. Oh, uh, really? Fat! Hey, 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 now, well, see, right, no that was men- gratuitous. No mention of his weight whatsoever. That was gratuitous I'm, by our standards, I'm Michael. Sorry, so I'm that very was, sorry. Yeah, that was a moment that we can't be proud of. <laughs> Add well, that one to the list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Where's that list, Captain? <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Uh, speaking of which, uh, somebody who really ought to know saying we got something completely wrong. And I'm ready to fess up to sure, it. Fine. Stay tuned for that. When was the last time you heard a talk show do that? Never! Speaking of a long list. <laughs> <laughs> Too much perspective. So, Jack was talking about being in the uh, emergency room the other day when a horrifying shriek erupted from uh, the yes. Some guy started screaming, and he was screaming. What I could make out was, I didn't hurt anybody. I didn't hurt anybody. Just like, obviously violently angry. Yeah. And things smashing around. Yeah. I actually was expecting to hear gunshots at some point, which is a weird thing in our culture, because yeah. years ago, it wouldn't have crossed my mind. Expecting to hear or just I need to be prepared for? I don't uh, know if that's a small enough difference to actually pretty, make a distinction. Pretty close to expecting to hear. Interesting. Well, I was in high school. My mom worked nights in the labor and delivery department for the local hospital. Writes, uh, doesn't ask for any anonymity, uh, Colin. Uh, I stopped by one night after football practice to say hi to her before going home. That's lovely. That's a nice family relationship. After chatting a couple minutes in the lobby area, I heard lobby area. I heard a gut wrenching, blood curdling, demon summoning <laughs> scream from down the hall. Demon summoning. This was unlike any other scream I have heard before or since. It was like the devil himself was giving birth to a thousand little gremlins. With absolute horror on my face, I turned to see my mom and the other nurses smile and laugh. And uh, one simply said, we've got a screamer. (laughs) From then on, my visits to see my mom at work were much less frequent. So somebody in horrifying pain? Well, labor. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is horrifying pain. Yeah, that's funny. We got into that discussion as we was in the emergency room and we heard some uh, screaming and that sort of thing. And my wife was talking about the horrible pain of labor Mm. because we were right by the birthing center, which I hadn't been to since the kids were born. Yeah. I went over there to the cafeteria and got something. I said, that's the first time I've been in there since uh, since Henry was born. And she didn't want to go in there because it was memories of oh, the boy. pain. Oh, boy. I said, that's interesting, yeah, because I only have, you know, fond memories of the birthing center. She has her body telling her, worst pain of your life happened there. Stay away. Right. How <laughs> interesting. Yeah, just instinctive. Yeah. I tell you what, there is no class of people, uh, I think, who who better understands joy and pain and sadness in humanity than labor and delivery nurses and, uh, you know, well, and people who work in hospitals. But because, um, you know, I, I don't mean to take this too seriously. I'll keep this very brief, but it's the, the joy. I mean, the happy parents, the tears, the everything, the, the uh, promising new human being, et cetera, et cetera. 
then the kids they see are never going to have a chance, and they know it. Right. Um, not to mention, you know, the the actual tragedies. But anyway, oh my God! Yeah, that's oh, geez, I'd say. Moving along, BJ from San Francisco. I worked as a security officer in a major San Francisco hospital. I spent many hours working in the emergency department. Jack is correct; can be a nightmare, particularly for the security officers. Many people don't realize there's a law called EMTALA, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Active Labor Act. Basically, it means no ER can turn away anyone who comes in with a medical problem. The abuse of this is staggering. Once again, the law of unintended consequences. This is a good case study. For instance, many homeless people come in, complain about something. My arms are itching. They get to see a doctor, a bed for the night, and food. We used to have drunk tanks, but now the police drop off the drunks in the ER, so the hospital takes care of them. I won't get into the 1799 and 5150 holes, holds, which are designed to take care of patients who are a danger to themselves or others. That guy that was screaming was clearly a 5150 dude. They can become big problems for doctors and staff who are dealing with someone totally unhinged. Of course, security has to always be watching these patients. I have too many hideous stories to tell. I'm just happy I'm retired now. Well, Mm. send your favorites along, BJ. I wondered as I was looking around a pretty busy ER with a lot of people that didn't seem... I mean, it wasn't like, you know... A moaning, holding their wounds sort of thing. They looked fine. I thought, are you just using the ER as your doctor? Because that happens a lot. Listen to this story. Um, I think I can use this. uh, Well, Jay. We'll say Jay. While working as a cop, I heard a radio call go out that a man, that there was currently a statewide dragnet going on for a former cop who had killed his wife. He got the radio call. He was in the local ER. He says, I was working narcotics at the time, had very long hair and a beard. I immediately entered the ER, asked the head nurse, and she affirmed, yeah, he's in the ER complaining about uh, something or other, wanted to see a doctor. I borrowed the doctor's robe and stethoscope and went in to play doc with this six foot six pound, uh, six foot six, 260 pound murderer, trying to figure out how I was going to take this guy into custody without getting killed or having to kill him. I just made up questions that other docs had used with me while holding a clipboard, which I found in the military is more empowering than general stars, which deserves a, a conversation in itself. No kidding. Jay, great point, but we'll move on. Um, and then told him we were going to do some basic movement tests. While doing this, I did a couple. Then I asked him to see if he could reach behind himself and right. put his palms together. Right. <laughs> he did. I cuffed him, and then I was on the nightly news. My fourth 15 minutes of fame. Wow. Wow, what a great story, bro. That was clever. Yeah, thank you for sending that. The power of the clipboard, there's no doubt about that. I bet you can't break into this jail cell. (laughs) We have have a lot more of those, uh, you know, as time permits. (laughs) What's coming up in your news, Marshall? U.S. threatening Russia and Iran with dire consequences if they don't back off on attacks in Syria. And the river of opioids continues to flow into America. Hmm. Okay. Those are both really interesting stories coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. So, have you seen this picture going around? The million bottles of water still sitting in Puerto Rico a year after Hurricane Maria? Just, wow! They got sent by I think the U.S. I think we paid for them. We U.S. taxpayers. I think it's a FEMA water. It got mm-hmm. there and then somehow on our end or their end or whatever that happens with governments, all the bottles of water are just sitting there in a big field. 
It is, well, Remember listen. after Katrina, when you heard the story about the semi-trucks full of right. ice driving all around the country? Right, right. just back and forth. Yeah. I said this in the Obama administration. I, I'm saying it now. I've actually said it for a very long time. Stop worshiping the federal government and looking for it to solve your problems. It is impossible to believe that the state, well, Commonwealth and local governments of Puerto Rico aren't aware of that water and the need for it and where that is and can't get it distributed. The closer you are to your home, the more local you are, the more accountability you have. You can whip your state government into shape, unless it's California, which is ungovernable. Or your county, certainly. Well, well, yeah, certainly. Um, Good luck having FEMA be perfect when it comes to your state. It's the wrong place to look. We'll probably see stories out of this new hurricane if it is what they say it's going to be. But remember the Katrina thing where they had all the empty trailers on one side of the road and all the people living in the field on the other side of the road, and because of freaking government, you couldn't somehow allow the people into those trailers. Couldn't get the permits done. Right. It's incredible. Let's get the news now, Marsha Phillips. Another big story that continues to develop. Tensions continue to ratchet up as U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley warned Russia and Iran about continuing airstrikes against the last rebel-held area in Syria. The United States has been very clear with Russia and with the broader international community. We consider any assault on Idlib to be a dangerous escalation of the conflict in Syria. If Assad, Russia, and Iran continue, the consequences will be dire. Putin and Assad have to, if they hear that at all, have to think, does anybody buy that? Do they really think that we're buying that? General Mattis pointed out the other day that when they uh, unleashed that gas attack that we launched cruise missiles for, they lost, was it 18% of what he called their pointy-nose airplanes, which I, it was a term I was unfamiliar with, their fighters. Um, and he said they better believe we're serious. So, hmm. I don't know. Those statements coming as the U.N. Secretary General warned of a potential bloodbath during the U.N. Security Council meeting on the crisis in Syria. Got a new report out that claims President Trump's former campaign chairman is indeed talking to the special counsel about a possible plea deal. The Washington Post reporting Paul Manafort is indeed talking to the team investigating Russia. Yeah, but... Okay, I'm a little confused by this because he got convicted of a bunch of tax... Eight counts of bank and tax fraud. Right. Yep. He's got another trial coming up in a few days. Yeah, he's probably not in the mood for that. Yeah, this... this, I mean, especially because whatever this one's about is going to be penny-ante crap compared to the tax and fraud convictions. Well, right. So, Bannon didn't think much of Manafort. Uh, ever. And then after he met him and started hanging around with him and all, he really didn't think... They're completely different guys. And and he saw Trump as, you know, the hero of the working class and Bannon, you know, dresses and, and and looks the way he looks. And then Manafort always had an ascot on and a robe and it's five thousand dollar suit. <laughs> and he went over to Manafort's apartment and right. his wife was lounging on the white couch in a white dress saying she looked like Joan Collins from Dynasty. Wow. Just really not his crowd. Wow. <laughs> I gotta ask my wife to do that when my friends come over. Wonder what she'd say. <laughs> Honey, put on something slinky and lounge on the couch. <laughs> the hell are you talking about? Wow. Oh, man. Oh. Federal, <laughs> federal regulators turning down Wells Fargo's plan to repay customers the bank forced to buy unnecessary auto insurance. 
Reuters, the Reuters news agency, reporting that the office of the comptroller of the currency is telling Wells Fargo it needs to do more to find and repay everyone who was overcharged. That could be as many as six hundred thousand drivers or instead they could just run those commercials where they talk about then the stagecoach driver said to the thieves and so we've changed our ways just come back and give us your money again wow six hundred thousand people did not know they didn't have to buy the insurance that is amazing we got a new study that's found that more than a quarter, more than a quarter of opioid prescriptions in the U.S. from 2006 to 2015 were given to patients who were not diagnosed with pain. Instead, they were given to people who had issues like hypertension, high cholesterol, and even opioid dependence. Well, the last one I get, 25%. Of the prescriptions yes. during that period, yes, when the great death surge began, yes, were I would, fake. I would love to know of that percentage. How many of those were those just blatant pill mills that were popping up in places oh, like yeah. Florida, yeah, where they, there was the crooked doctor, and then you go to the other cubicle, right. and then they just they give you the pills mm-hmm. right there. And oh, researchers found that it was particularly common for doctors to keep giving opioids to patients already taking them, even if they didn't report any more ongoing pain. It was just, here, have some more of these. It'll keep you feeling good. So we were in the ER the other day, and yes. I think this chart was for kids. It was the ridiculous pain scale that has led oh, to right. some of this, this opioid ab- yeah. It's led to yeah. some of this opioid abuse is the, is the ridiculous pain scale. But um, So for the kids, they had zero pain, a smiley face. Mm. Then the scale of one to five. Five was full tears, like awful face. I got that, but like in between, like two was just kind of a half smile. <laughs> yeah. I don't do that when I'm in mild pain. Uh, Maybe you uh. should. <laughs> <laughs> or, no man is an island. Number three pain, which is you know close to the most painful, just straight face, completely blank face. Right. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do the half smile when I'm in moderate pain. <laughs> There you uh, that kind of hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> it aches, it aches. <laughs> there you go. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips. The Armstrong and Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. I'm more familiar with the 1 to 10 scale, so they went with the 1 to 5. Probably time saver. I don't know. I guess. Some things don't need a 1 to 10 scale. Sure. You don't need 10 stars for a movie. Six and a half, I'll watch. Seven, no. You know, no. You Too know, many stars. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Hmm. So anyway, uh, I got some more from the Trump book. It's a oh. classic Trump. I think you'll really enjoy. Oh, and listen, the Atlantic, which I said was dead to me, but I'm a liar, uh, has an absolutely wonderful piece about why college is so expensive in mm. America. Mm. They nailed it. It's an example of something we have been getting right for a very long time. Plus, at some point, we'll squeeze in a, a learned man saying we got something completely wrong. God, I hope they get that college thing fixed before my kids are old enough for it. <laughs> Uh, Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Solo from the Woodward book, and uh, I know some of this sort of thing is true. We have some firsthand accounts from friends who uh, who've 
hung out with Trump, that he that he's like this. So I just found this pretty entertaining. So this guy, Bossy, and uh, who's a Republican operative, and Bannon. Bannon went to meet Trump for the first time because Trump was thinking about running for president. This is in 2010. And Bossy tells Trump, Trump Tower in his office, if you're going to run for president, you have to know, a, you know, you have to know lots of little things and lots of big things. The little things are filing deadlines, state rules for primaries minutia. You have to know the, the policy side, how to win delegates, but you need to understand the conservative movement. Trump nodded. You got some problems on issues. I don't have any problems on issues. What are you talking about? First off, there's never been a guy win the Republican primary that's not pro-life, and unfortunately, you're very pro-choice. What do you mean? You have a record of giving to the abortion guys, the pro-choice candidates. You've made statements. You've got to be pro-life against abortion. I'm against abortion. I'm pro-life. Well, you got a track record. That can be fixed. You just tell me how to fix it. I'll be whatever you call it. Pro-life? I'm pro-life. I'm telling you. Bannon was impressed with the showmanship, and increasingly so as Trump talked. Trump was engaged and quick. He was in great physical shape. His presence was bigger than the man and took over the room, a command presence. He had something. And he was like Archie Bunker, like a really focused Archie Bunker. That's a pretty good reading of Trump. Wow. The second, Those not familiar with the reference, Google it. The second big thing, boss, he said, is your voting record. What do you mean, my voting record? About how often you vote. What are you talking about? Well, this is a Republican primary. <laughs> this is a Republican primary. I vote every time, Trump said confidently. I've voted every time since I was 18. That's actually not correct. You know, there's a public record of your vote. The congressional uh, stack of records. They don't know how I vote. No, no, not, not how you vote. How often you vote. Bannon realized that Trump did not know the most rudimentary business of politics. I voted every time, Trump insisted. Actually, you've never voted in a primary except once in your entire life, Bossy said. That's an effing lie, Trump said. That's a total lie. Every time I get to vote, I vote. You only voted in one primary in 1988. You're right, Trump said. Pivoting 180 degrees, not missing a beat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> Which is just amazing. You know, what's funny about that. And it hadn't dawned on me the first time I heard that is that's a very New Yorker thing to do. You you test your uh, the the person you're arguing with by just completely you make you make them prove it and then once they do you say all right yeah granted oh, and you move along it's a it's a technique it's not it's not the same as if somebody in San Diego tried to do the same thing yeah I didn't grow up around people that would ever do that that much bluster right right that's New York but yeah I can believe that, that yeah. that's just a common way to do it. <laughs> Trump says, that's an effing lie, a total lie. Every time I voted, every time. No, you voted once in 1988. You're right, Trump <laughs> said, pivoting 180 degrees. That was for Rudy Giuliani for mayor in 1988. Um, so I'll get over that, Trump said. Maybe none of those things matter, boss, he said, but maybe they do. If you're going to move forward, you have to be methodical. Bannon was up next. He turned to what was driving the Tea Party, blah, blah, blah. They got into populism, talked about that for a little bit. Uh, Trump kept saying popularism. Bannon decided not to correct him. Um, uh, Then an hour into the meeting, Bossy said, we have another big issue. What's that? Trump asked. Well, 80% of the donations you've you've given have been to Democrats. To Bossy, that was Trump's biggest political liability, which I think is short-sighted. But that's bull. Well, it's conventional. That's bull S, said Trump. There's public records. There's records of that, Trump said? (laughs) Wow. Which is awesome. Every donation you've ever made, public disclosure of all political giving, it's standard. I'm always even. I divide my donations evenly between Republicans and Democrats. Actually, you give quite a bit, but there's 80% of it goes to Democrats. We've got the numbers. Uh, 
Well, these effing Democrats run all the cities. You got to build hotels. You got to grease them. So he just immediately, and then he said, I'll get over that. Um, I can handle it. And and Bannon, for whatever reason, with his just demeanor and everything, believed, yeah, I'll bet this guy can. And and Trump went on to say, I'll beat all these guys. Whoever runs against me, I'll beat them all. Wow. Which he did. Wow. He just He just had that feeling. I can be the nominee, Trump said. I can beat these guys. I don't care who they are. I got this. I can take care of these other things. I'm pro-life. I'm going to start. Just, wow. He had that feeling, and Bannon believed him. And what was what was the year on that? That's 2010. Um, and as you get further along into into the whole thing, and I, I want to read at some point from when the Hollywood Access tape went down, because that whole meeting was really something. But Bannon was a true believer. He actually believed. He said, look, we can close the gap to this many numbers. In the debates, we'll do this. And then the final sprint, will do this. This is we're going to approach it in these states. We can win this thing. He, mm-hmm. I believe he believed it. Yes. Nobody else believed it. Mm. Nobody else believed it. They're just he, drawing a paycheck. And he says, he and Bannon says in the book, that he didn't think Trump believed it. He says Trump was completely surprised on election day that they won. Bannon believed they would win. Trump didn't. And then people like Christie, Reince Priebus, Conway, they all were certain he was going to get smoked. I mean, they said that out loud regularly. Wow. wow. They're, he was going to get killed. Um, and Trump had certainly had his doubts. But um, Bannon believed 100% that he could win. He said, we're going to approach it like running for the governor of these five states ah. and and hold these rallies and this and that, Yeah, which is what they did. Yeah, that's amazing. It's, it's pretty interesting, though. Bannon, Bannon's really impressive in this book. Oh, yeah. He's an amazing guy. And, and I know he has friends who have friends with people who are unsavory. I totally get that. But, uh, you know, for the umpteenth time, the idea that he would be disinvited to the New Yorker Festival, you can't even... Gr- you can't even have a lefty grill him hard on stage because his very presence is so impure. That the, This is the guy who got Donald J. Trump elected president. Yeah, He's a genius. I mean, he's a fascinating guy. Even if you think he's evil or misguided, uh, the idea that, oh, no, no, we, we, we don't want to even acknowledge his presence. That's just, it's adolescent is yeah. what that is. And it also shows that a lot, well, this is what teams do, whether it's sports or music or whatever the hell it is. They are complementary. And I don't think either one of them could have done it without the other. Right. Um, yeah. you, you need the sort of guy that, that is Trump that for whatever, for better or worse, he is a guy that can be taken it from all sides. Everybody who knows what they're talking about says you're wrong. And he has the ability to just say, nope, I'm doing it this way. And, and convincingly go forward. Mm. And and Bannon was uh, supportive of that and all that sort of stuff because all those other people wanted to do just the traditional crap. Bannon got in there and he looked at the final weeks leading up to election days. There was an education week. There was an empowering women week. He says, is this George Bush running in 89? This is crap. It's really interesting stuff wow, from a campaigning yeah. standpoint. Yeah. yeah. You got to have the right kind of people, though. <laughs> Oh, and he also understood uh, Hillary's weaknesses, but that's a whole different thing. Right. Well, let's talk about that more. Uh, you know, uh, where this all ends, nobody knows, but we were way, way, way overdue for a, a blow up of the conventional thinking and the conventional methods, and the conventional people that have uh, yielded the government we have. I mean, that's just beyond question. I always thought Trump Trump was the wrong guy to to bring that. But he's in now, and we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, Bannon was talking about how Hillary sounds like sounds like everybody's worst caricature of a politician at a time when people hate politicians. Right. And that every line she says sound focus group, and Obama and Trump had the, in common that they could stand up and talk like regular guys. They're postmodern in yeah. terms of politics, yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine if it had been like Jeb? 
who 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 was somebody said the other day who spent a billion dollars to get two percent the the mirror image of hillary at least from a style standpoint right. Jim's I, a, I think a decent yeah human i don't being, think but, he's evil right or anything uh for instance yeah just uh, among the qualities Please clap. but his every sentence he says has been focus grouped and right oh yeah that whole absolutely thing. um can you uh, can you imagine how soul sucking that would have been Oh, and uh, there would be if it had been Bush versus Clinton. Yeah, the 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 dynasties and both of them just you know political focus groups spewing out there. Oh, God, turnout would have been five percent. You know, hundred and eighty people voted, and they chose Hillary by eight votes. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty much uh, established on the record as believing that this vicious, overly emotional, insane partisan hatred of each other is really unhealthy, but. If something crazy hadn't happened this election cycle, it would have this past one. It would have had to have happened in 2020. Sure, because the country could not endure something that that just suffocatingly conventional and uninspiring. It needed again. a release valve. Right? Yeah. I voted every effing time. No, you didn't. You're right. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show.